Hi gang, Bill Creasy here. I've had a wonderful time recording the last 20 episodes of Scripture Uncovered, and I'm delighted that we've found listeners like you who appreciate what we're doing. The podcast is a great way for me to talk directly to you, my students, and listeners. And I look forward to receiving and answering your questions every week. Like any radio program or podcast, significant time and resources go into making each episode of Scripture Uncovered possible. And we want to make the show better and better every week. We're committed to keeping the podcast free for anyone who wants to listen. But now, we're also offering the opportunity to support the podcast. We've launched a page on Patreon, a service that allows patrons, that would be you, to support creators, that would be us, kind of like a digital age version of old world patronage. What's exciting is that we have all kinds of benefits to offer patrons of Scripture Uncovered, from free courses in the online classroom to our upcoming webinars launching this September. So go to patreon.com scripture to find out more. By supporting Logos Bible Study and Scripture Uncovered for as little as $10 or $20 a month, we can continue producing the podcast, making it better and more valuable to our listeners every week. And for your support, you'll have access to a whole range of Logos Bible Study material. So go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash scripture. The first 50 supporters of the show will get free access to our first live webinar in September. Okay, now it's time for the show. Let's do it. Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Bill Creasy here, back with our podcast for this week. Last week, in the wake of 100 degree temperatures and a broken air conditioner in our new home, I pondered what I called the big lie. That is, that material success brings happiness. Well, it doesn't. And I think I explored that pretty well. We looked at Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, and we read, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, eh, who needs the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. And we can add to that a line from the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, give us this day a fully funded 401k plan or a new iPhone 10. And we looked at Solomon, perhaps the most successful man ever. You think Bill Gates hasn't made? He pales in comparison to Solomon. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't plan for the future, managing your God-given resources responsibly. That would be foolish. Nor am I saying that you shouldn't have a nice home, a nice car, and the ability to travel and enjoy life. And I have to say, I like my iPhone 10. After my Marine Corps years, 
I started college as a 24-year-old freshman, and I went straight through to a PhD in medieval literature for the next 11 years. And I can tell you, I didn't do it for the money. A PhD in medieval literature? But during my graduate school days, I was a dirt poor student living in a tiny one-room apartment, about as big as my kitchen today, collecting empty soda bottles in vacant lots and cashing them in to buy loose rice and stopping by McDonald's for a handful of free ketchup, dinner for the week. Back then, I considered ramen noodles splurging and craft dinner, that was a real treat. Why at times, I even sold my own plasma to pay the rent. Look, I've been poor and I've been not. Not is considerably better. What I'm saying though, is that material success doesn't bring happiness. My graduate school days were some of the happiest days of my life. And I'd do them over again in a second. But if success doesn't bring happiness, what does? I've been thinking about this all week, and I keep turning to Psalm 1. Let me read it to you in my translation. Blessed indeed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the godless, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scorners. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he ponders day and night. He's like a tree planted by flowing water that yields its fruit in due season and its leaf does not wither and in all that he does, he prospers. Not so are the godless, not so. They are like winnowed chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the godless will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the just. For the Lord knows the way of the just, but the way of the godless will perish. Notice that the psalm sets up a dichotomy between the blessed man and the godless man. The opening verse begins, blessed indeed is the man. The first word in Hebrew is esher, which I've translated as blessed, not happy, as many translations do. The word happy derives from the Middle English hap, H-A-P, as in mishap or perhaps or happenstance. Happy is a response to exterior events, to chance or to luck. If I win the lottery, I'd be happy. If I get a big bill from the IRS, I'd be unhappy. Esher or blessedness has nothing to do with external events. Esher, or blessed, is an internal condition, one that's unaffected by circumstance or feelings, whether good or bad. And in Psalm 1, Esher, or blessed, has the force of an interjection like, oh, blessed is the man. Now, I've intensified the word in my translation by rendering it Blessed indeed is the man. And what is it in Psalm 1 that creates 
this condition of blessedness? Well, let's follow the psalm. Blessed indeed is the man. And I would expect who does three things. But no, who doesn't do three things? Who walks not in the counsel of the godless, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scorners. So the blessed man, the truly blessed man, doesn't do those three things. Walk, stand, and sit in the counsel, the way, the seat of the godless sinners or scorners. Each one of those phrases escalates. He does not walk, that is, just follow along with the advice of the godless. And the godless are exactly that, godless, without God. Ones who simply don't recognize God at all. The blessed man does not follow along with the crowd and the advice of the people who simply don't recognize or have any interest in God. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Now standing is more engagement than walking or simply following. Now you've stopped in the path, the way of the sinners. Sinners are differ from the godless. The godless simply have no interest, desire, capacity for God at all. The sinners know who God is and turn their backs on him. Nor sits in the seat of scorners. While sitting is full engagement from following along, walking, to stopping and standing with them, to sitting down and joining them. The scorners differ from sinners in that sinners know God and turn their backs on him. Scorners mock others who don't do what they do. So we have an increasing level of involvement. The blessed man does not do any of those things, but rather, his delight, his positive delight, is in the law of the Lord, Torah, or the comprehensive teaching of God, through scripture, through creation, through all that we know God to be and do. And on his law, on his comprehensive teaching, the blessed man ponders day and night. It's always there, always turning in his mind, always probing and thinking and engaging. And then the psalm introduces a simile. A simile is a comparison using like or as. He is like a tree planted by flowing water that yields its fruit in due season and its leaf does not wither and in all that he does he prospers. Now that is a really powerful image, especially in a hot, dry, barren land like the Negev in Israel or the White Desert in Egypt. There, a tree planted by flowing water puts down deep roots, draws in the moisture and nutrients, and it thrives, producing fruit in due season, fruit at the proper time. It can't be hurried, it can't be rushed. The fruit comes at the proper time as the natural consequence of the tree's condition or its blessedness 
if you will, and it produces fruit abundantly. Now that's in sharp contrast to the godless man, the one literally without God, the one who is godless. They are like winnowed chaff that the wind just blows away. And what a powerful image in contrast to the solid tree planted by flowing waters with its roots sunk deeply into the rich earth, producing fruit, plump, juicy, and ripe. The Hebrew word here translated as chaff is motz, the thin, transparent, nearly weightless seed covering that when, that when wheat or barley is winnowed, it's carried off by the slightest breeze. It's an insubstantial nothingness. It makes me think of Solomon's refrain in Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Meaningless there is hevel, vapor or breath. Again, an insubstantial nothingness just floating on the wind. Interestingly, chaff is also a cloud of tiny, weightless slivers of metal or glass fibers that a fighter jet fires in a puff to distract and confuse an enemy missile shot in its direction. Shiny objects in life, if you will, that distract us from our goal. So where am I going with all this? Seeking happiness is a fool's errand, my friends. Happiness is the result of external events. They come and they go. We can chase after them, but if we do, and if we get them, we'll soon be unhappy because we'll need more. It's a never-ending cycle. That's the dynamic of the great lie and it's the engine that drives our consumer culture. Now, I suppose chasing after the great lie can bring happiness of a sort, but it's fleeting. And in the end, it's insubstantial nothingness. So if we abandon our quest for happiness, how do we find the path to blessedness, the real deal? Well, again, we might turn to Psalm 1. The truly blessed person is the one who doesn't buy into the big lie, who simply opts out and who isn't distracted by all the chaff. The truly blessed person plants deep roots in fertile soil, one who ponders eternal truths, who produces fruit, the natural consequence of blessedness who, as St. Paul advises his friends in Philippi. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, 
and then the God of peace will be with you. Now, I'm not saying that you should be irresponsible in your day-to-day -day affairs. No. God has given us talents, gifts, and abilities. And we have the obligation to develop those talents, gifts, and abilities and to put them to work. That's our responsibility. But we need to keep it all in perspective. Back in the mid-1980s, like Dante in The Divine Comedy, I found myself lost in a dark wood. <laughs> I had wandered way off the reservation. And the harder I chased after the big lie, the more hollow and empty I became. Like Dante, I felt like I was descending into the lower circles of hell, but I didn't have a wise guide like Virgil to point out the dangers. I finally escaped to Gethsemane Abbey, the Trappist Monastery in Kentucky. And there, I met a very old monk, a priest who had been at Gethsemane since before World War II. I asked him if he'd hear my confession. And I have to say, it took a long time because I had a long list of sins. But in the end though, he said to me, Bill, I thought you were supposed to be a smart guy, you know, a professor and all that. Listen, you put God first in your life, your family second, your friends third, and your work fourth. And if you get them out of order, you're going to be miserable. Sink your roots deeply in rich fertile soil near streams of running water, and you'll produce fruit consistent with who you are, who God meant you to be. Now oh, that was very good advice. And that's how you find genuine blessedness, my friends, through the simple advice of a very old and very wise Trappist monk. Something you and I should have figured out a long time ago. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Don't forget, you can now support the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com scripture to find out more about all the great benefits for supporting Scripture Uncovered. Now, back to the show. Here's Dr. Creasy. Well, welcome back to our question and answer session. Last week, we sent out a request for your audio questions so that we can include your voice in the show. We had an amazing response. And this week, we'll take a listen to a question from Francis in New Zealand. Hi, Dr. Bill Creasy. This is Francis from New Zealand. I'm so glad to have found you online. I'm really enjoying listening to your podcast and the 77 part um, introduction to the Bible series which I found on Audible and I explored your website. I'm really enjoying what I'm learning about through you. And I would just like to ask this question from my father, who I also couldn't give an excellent answer to. Where did evil come from in the first place? If everything that God created was good right from the beginning, 
How could evil possibly come out of something that is good? Like in the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because before that, you said in one of your lectures that um, evil started with Lucifer when he turned, when he became proud in himself. But how did pride originate? How did evil originate? Thank you so much and looking forward to you answering this question. God bless you. Well, that's a really good question, Francis. And I address the answer to you and to your dad as well. When God created all that is back in Genesis 1 and 2, at every act of creation, every act of creation led to completion and perfection. At the end of each act, God said, and it is good. And then on the sixth day, on the final day of creation, God said, it is very good. What God creates is good, perfect, and complete. On the last day of creation, he created us, you and me, man and woman. And he said, it is good. But notice what he said over in Genesis 1 at verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock over all the earth and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Unlike all the other acts of creation in which God spoke something into existence, let there be light, boom, there was light. With humanity, he created us, we see in Genesis 2, by breathing into the man the breath of life. We are made in the image of God. The Hebrew word is teshlem, it's like shadow. We're not God, but we're like God in that sense. And we carry within us the very breath of God. That's what makes each and every one of us infinitely valuable in God's eyes. And we should be valuable as well in our own eyes and in the eyes of others. So God created us and it was good. But then in Genesis chapter 3, well, you know the story. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? <laughs> Why, I can hardly believe that. Now think of this for a moment. We're in the garden. This is mythopoeic literature. It's story that teaches fundamental, profound truths. So this serpent, the Hebrew word is nachash, the shining one, Apparently, a being superior to Eve. Well, she was the top of creation, but yet this creature was even more glorious. And he said, did God really say? And you hear the tone of voice? I can hardly believe that. Huh, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden or even touch it or you'll die. 
Now, I don't know what die is because it never happened before, but it can't be good. So he told us not to do it. And with that, the serpent, now I can just see it, leans against that tree, touching it, and says, you won't die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Not in the teshlem, the image of God, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the implication is, you'll be like me, a glorious creature. Well, the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, so she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So she didn't take the apple from the tree, go to Adam and tempt him with it. He was standing right there. And the problem wasn't the apple on the tree, it was the pear on the ground. Well, they both ate it. Why? Because they wanted what they want, not what God wants. And with that, sin enters the world. And we defined sin in our study of Genesis, not as an act that we commit, but a condition that we're in, a condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in outward sinful action. In other words, had I been in a right relationship with God, I wouldn't have held up the 7-Eleven. When God created us in his image, in his teshlem, and breathed into us the breath of life, his own breath, he gave us the freedom to choose to love him or not. He loves us, but love has to be a choice. You can't force someone to love you. When God created all the other animals, he said, and it's good. But those animals didn't have the freedom to choose to love God or not. Animals don't have free will in that sense. We do. My golden retriever, Dusty, may he rest in peace, loved me. He had to. He was a golden retriever. That's what they do. But we don't have to love God. We don't have to love another person. And if we choose not to love God, if we choose to turn our backs on God and step into that condition of alienation and separation from God, then we begin making very bad choices that result in very bad consequences, not punishment, but natural consequences of the decisions that we make. And in fact, if we turn over the page, a couple of pages here in Genesis, to chapter six at verse five, chapter six at verse five, only three chapters later, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So how does evil enter the world? Evil enters the world not through God, but through us, because we choose to turn our backs on God, go our own way, and do what we darn well please. And with that, come consequences, the consequences of our behavior, and true, genuine evil. Look around the world, look across history, and it is sure there. Well, thank you for that question. 
Francis. I really appreciate it. And those of you listening in, do a voice message and we'll put you on air too. Thank you. See you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. To submit your text or audio questions, email us at online at LogosBibleStudy.com. That's online at LogosBibleStudy.com. And check out Scripture Uncovered on Patreon, a great service that allows you to support the show so that we can continue bringing valuable programs to you week by week. There are all kinds of benefits for supporting the show, including free online courses in the Logos Online Classroom. The first 50 supporters will get free access to Dr. Creasy's first live webinar session in September. Go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, slash scripture to learn more. Patreon.com slash scripture. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.